Uh, no, look, I, I want to start, start with you two to my left, Julian and Frank, because, uh, Julian, why, why do, I mean, slightly invidious question, but if Frank really was the last uh, pillar of the trilogy, quartet, I should say, um, to come to, why, how did you come to choose him? Did you know Frank's work before? And uh, thinking about, the, obviously, the, the work that Frank has done in, with Sophocles before. I had uh, seen the marvellous uh, Oedipus the King that Frank had done, which was done at the National Theatre with Ray Fiennes in the lead role and had been terribly impressed with it. And independently, Ed Gardner had also seen that production. So I think you're friends with Jonathan Kent, That's the right. producer. And um, in fact, I, and I've told Frank this already, that my first uh, reaction to Ed's idea, in fact, that I should use Frank was not entirely positive because I was worried that it would be somebody who wasn't fresh to the subject and would come with too many Agendas. This was nonsense, in fact. But <laughs> you have to work these things through. Um, I, I, there is an a, a extra person secret behind this, which I don't think I've told you about. Um, another very well-known librettist and writer, um, Martin Crimp, to whom I said this, said... Who wrote, who wrote the libretto? Who wrote the libretto for George several Benjamin. George Benjamin operas and is a very well-known playwright, of course, in his own right. I met him, uh, we, we were having dinner with some other people, and he said... Um, we discussed uh, this, and um, he said, I think you should meet Frank. I really think you should meet Frank McGuinness. I don't think he would come with preconceptions at all. I think you'd find him an, a very, very good person to collaborate with, indeed. And Martin knows my music a bit. So um, that was, uh, plus all the persuasion from Ed and other people, and I didn't regret it for a second, because as soon as I met personally with Frank... I mean, I felt an intense sympathy, and I don't, don't often use this expression, soul bonding, but that's what I felt was happening within minutes of, at most of this. We sat down at a table, looked at his uh, play, discussed our intentions, discussed ideas. It was marvellously stimulating, and um, the guy is one of the greatest wordsmiths alive as far as I'm concerned, and fantastically flexible, inventive... Uh, you, and gave me a, a good amount of leeway so that I could really work creatively with this fantastic text. And um, it was a very, very happy collaboration from my point of view, really perfect. So but, I'm very grateful to everyone who said, yes, use Frank. <laughs> you were all right. <laughs> Frank, and I'm very pleased to, to, to have started a lovely friendship with this great writer. Frank, this isn't quite your first uh, opera libretto, but on this scale it, it is for sure. But what, what, was, what was your reaction then to being... To being asked, especially in the context of being asked to effectively to turn a, a play which is already a piece that you designed as a fully sustaining, uh, you know, night at the theatre on its own terms, to then think about well, how do you how do you work the words in, in, in a libretto? What was what was your first reaction? Well, it came at the right time um, because of, I'd only been really going to the opera for about four years, and, and really, um, yeah, you know, I. I I wanted to meet Julian. I'd heard some of his music after I was asked to meet him. I, I got some. I loved it. And I had always wanted to finish these plays. And I felt that you know what I was being asked to do would give me an opportunity and a framework and the discipline to do it. Uh, but I knew that it would really come down an awful lot to how the spark would be when we met. And I felt that when I did meet him... Um, I was dealing with somebody who knew what they were doing and somebody who knew what they wanted. They, you know, not exactly saying what they wanted, but they knew what they wanted. So I wasn't working with a messer uh, and I wasn't working with um, somebody who was going to 
take perverse delight in turning down what I offered for the sheer sake of turning it down. What are you saying about composers, Frank? Um, <laughs> I'm thinking more of directors. We'll come on to that. Conductors. Can we discuss that sometime? I felt that um, there was an integrity to the man, and also, I mean, the more we talked, the more I recognised that there was a, a high intelligence to his sense of theatricality. So I knew I could trust him. Uh, I do want to <laughs> bring you in, Pierre. I know it's the day one, but I will come in. Um, the, uh, the, the sense of what you were doing, Frank, and what you wanted, Julian, because uh, of Frank's wordsmithery, all that, the genius is a playwright, not in doubt. But what, what, the, the, the task, though, of making a libretto is a different one from making a play. I mean, did, did you say to Frank, look, it's going to have to be pared down, it's going to have to be terse, it's going to have to allow me room as the composer to do the things that you usually do as a playwright? Well, in fact, uh, I mean, of course we talked about that, but, but I didn't have to say things like that because this guy knew opera very well <laughs> and he, was, he immediately said to me, I know this has got to be much shorter. And... Uh, um, I'm sorry, I, we have spoken to other people today, and I, Frank's heard this uh, tale from me three times today, but I'm going to say it again because I think it is relevant, which is that we looked at a two-page speech, and I said, well, obviously, um, that'll, that'll have to be somewhat shorter. And he said, oh, I can get it down to six lines. And I said, <laughs> I said whoa, whoa, it doesn't, you know. But he did. Then, and they said, no, I'll do it now. And he six beautifully chiseled, wonderful lines, very pregnant, very memorable, very good to sing, came onto the page just like that. Some of them were already there. Some of them were newly minted to, mm -hmm. to suit the context. And also, I remember, by the way, just remembered it, the end, the last line of Act One, mm. which uh, he wrote... Um, rewrote instantly when I said it was it was in a different character, and he said, "No, no, we, I can rewrite that so Oedipus will sing that better." And he then wrote, rewrote that line immediately, just like that. This is virtuoso wordsmithery, and it's also very musical. I, I, I want to come on to the specifics. Of the so I didn't have to sort of order no, okay. around or anything like that. Um, I want to come on to what you think of opera. Actually, oh, I just want to get these guys to sure. be better. Um, what, what were your two's reaction when you when you saw the completed thing? And we'll come back to the, the compositional process a bit. But the, the, the sense of what you saw when Julian uh, Ed, when you saw the, the, the actually this is the vocal score, the full score of, of Thebans for the first time, and Pierre, what, what did you make of what what you had wanted to create? Well, we saw the full score act by act quite recently. Did you? <laughs> <laughs> but it's, um, it's, it's absolutely beautiful. I, I was saying to, to Julian's publishers just right now that you don't feel like any moment has been has had anything other than complete care taken over it. I mean, on every level. The, the, uh, we've just been in three days of, of musicals with this, with the singers, and, and um, everything is singable. It just, it just feels fantastic through the voice. And... Um, the orchestration is the same. It's, it, it feels like you've spent decades over it, Julian, actually, and, and that's, it's, it's extraordinary. And um, it's not that late, really, in, in terms of... <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, we've got it, and, you know, the singers know it, which is amazing. With this, oh, this, is amazing. Yeah, with this great cast. And, um, well, I, I mean, I'm just enjoying it enormously. I, I, I knew Julian's music for a while since... I mean, I've known Julian for a very long time, but... I knew your music when I did some of it in the uh, uh, Music of Today uh, for the Philomonia Philomonia series, yeah. series. And uh, we did some vocal music in that too. And um, it was so clear that you wanted to write lyrically and dramatically for the voice. And this opera, you'll all see very soon, is exactly that. Yeah. Well, I'm obviously very preoccupied about the staging and how to bring it to life dramatically. So it's... it's, it's, uh, it's um, 
I can't, uh, at the moment, I'm not sort of like admiring it. Uh, uh, that's not that I'm not making a compliment. I'm just sort of in it, and I and I can sort of notice very clearly that it's very singable, that the singers uh, are enjoying the material, that it's working, that the orchestration is very subtle, very colorful, um, uh, to the point I'm gradually noticing that it all makes sense uh, as I'm <laughs> staging it. So those are all very positive uh, you know, aspects. It's, it's, it's basically, uh, there are no arias in it, it's basically a recitative, so it is, it is a kind of recitative opera, the way that, say, The Ring is, is a recitative, it's, a, it's, it's, it's mythic storytelling. Mm. But of course the phrases are very short, and in the highly economic style of Frank, it's very to the point, so mm. it's very uh, handy in terms of being a libretto, but having directed the, the plays, with actors, uh, I don't miss anything in a libretto uh, from the plays. I mean, Oedipus at Cronus is a very difficult play uh, to, to, to pull off in the theater. Um, uh, I think that the mysticism of the play can be explained to the audience better through music. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that that's what I'm looking forward to, to, to you know, hearing. Mm -hmm. Uh, the challenge, of course, is the, the change of order between the pieces, which I'm, I'm sure you will tackle yes, now. Yeah. That's, that's something we have to see as we cook the production, how that is going to be uh, working out. Yeah, well, let, let's think about that now, Frank, because you talked about that this is a chance to deal with um, Oedipus at Colonus and, uh, and Antigone, mm. the play, Oedipus the King, of course, you've done. So then you think of this then, in a way, in the words for the, for the libretto as your versions of this, and then why should that be true as a libretto and, and, and not a play, if you see what I mean? And is Pierre right to say that music takes the place of some of the mysticism? And, and then why tell the story in this way? So we start with Oedipus the King, Act 1, then Antigone, which is chronologically uh, number three, or would be, then we end with Oedipus at Colonus in your, in your second half, Acts 2 and 3. So why, why are those, those big decisions? Well, these were decisions that were jointly arrived at, mm -hmm. I have to say, actually, and I think we both should talk about it. But mm -hmm. what I would say about it is that um, and Pierre has, has directed both Oedipus and Oedipus at Colonus, and if I were to do these as plays, I would only do those two. I would not do Antigone mm -hmm. as the end of the mm -hmm. trilogy because I have seen twice the three plays done, and... While Antigone has gutted me as in the theatre when it's been done on its own, I felt that putting it at the end of uh, these three mm -hmm. sort of changes it remarkably because it's almost as if it's written by another writer. It's not, but it is almost as if it is, and it's earlier mm -hmm. than the other two. So when um, we did talk about this, we, never, we didn't say this at the beginning, but I was trying to drop hints that I hope were going to be very daring with the plot, not internally, but with the whole shape of the three operas. I hope we're going to be very daring. I kept saying that to Julian. I think he was picking up on that was on his own instincts, actually, that that was what he was going to do. Um, for me, uh, I can only do plays when they touch me to the core. And I think that at the very heart of these three plays, there is a most awesome and brutal truth, which is that uh, our fathers fail us, and then we fail our fathers. 
and may hand on these terrible griefs that the Greeks so intimately and specifically know. And I identify not with, I know who Oedipus is because there's a very large chunk of my father in him. And I know who Antigone is because there's a very large chunk of me in her. Um, I truly understand why she does what she does. I completely accept that if my brother were left without burial, I would do it. And I would also, and I mean this, I would also seek either to kill the man who stopped me from doing it or to arrange that he's killed. I understand the intimacy of that defiance and that revenge. That is my background, that is my politics. Mm -hmm. These plays speak directly to me. What I wanted to see, though, was to do justice to Antigone. And I feel that her journey within her own play is a spectacularly um, effective piece of self-promotion, for want of anything else. Mm -hmm. And I think when you do see that in the second act of the play, you're left wondering what has made her really do why this? Why does she do that? And for me, the core of why she does it is because she, as a child, has seen the horror that has happened to her father. And it's almost as if you need to leave until the end of it the cry of loss and isolation and pity and terror that Julian gets in the last notes of Colonus. That it is a spiritual, psychic, sexual journey that she's on. And that is as profound and as threatening and challenging as Oedipus is on. But I felt that we had to take the daring of putting three, two, two, three mm. to get that sense of upheaval mm -hmm. and reversal. I also have to say that, in quite brutal terms, I don't think I've ever gone to an opera for the plot. And I felt <laughs> if there was a medium to start playing with the codes of the story, it was opera. Um, I really do think that. You see, because, Julian, the, 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 look, I haven't heard any of the music. I'm looking at the vocal score here. In, t in terms of, the, the, there's a sort of, um, you're, uh, the, the, we haven't talked about the role of the chorus yet. There's so much to do with precisely what Frank's talking about in terms of the way that you, in a way, fracture the narrative in some ways. But look, looking at this, don't know what you feel. Don't know if this is right. Feels to me as if it is. That there's, there's a, as, in a way, there's a great straight line oh, nar narrative power through what you're doing, which is which is totally different to what, for example, Stravinsky does in his or Harry Bowers Bowers or Harry Bowers Bowers Bowers, which again is, a, is another is, is a bit different. of a, yeah. a, a sort of again a bit of a paradox in the sense of of, of doing this, as you say, this this big violent well, fracture. Cake and eating it. Why not? <laughs> I, time shifts, after all, are the staple dart of even Hollywood films and mm. stuff like that. Now, the time shift here is a, a fundamental reversal of seeing Antigone and her drama in the middle, and then in the third act, you get really the explanation of all mm. that and mm. more. Why did that happen as it did? What was the context? And gradually you get that filled in retrospectively. And as you do, you also see several very important things about Oedipus. Oedipus haunts Act Two, but he's not uh, present physically in it. And you see, for example, that Oedipus is a very uh, mixed bag. He's not a very good father in some ways. He leans too much on Antigone. She adores him. Um, and he also is a bad father to his son, Polynices. Uh, there's a terrible dialogue between them, which ends extremely badly. In the third act. In the third act. And that rounds off Oedipus's total character and also explains a great deal about why Antigone is as she is. 
in Act 2. So that Act 2 is like a sudden zoom forward to uh, the future time, and then you see why that actually happens. Act 2 is also very short. It's 21 minutes. It's very compressed, violent compression. And, 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 a, and a lot of violent music. A lot of violent music. music. And then the third act is much more meditative, as a spiritual, as Pierre has been saying, but also has... A, a lot of elements of explaining that violence in Act Two and confronting the sources of it. The other thing is this. At the end of it, Antigone, by her own father, is forbidden to see, at the end of Act Three, therefore the end of the whole opera, is forbidden to see him die or to see where he died. Mm. She has to stay off. She cannot see that. That obstruction it hits her so terribly and destroys her, that in a sense it destroys her totally. Mm. And her death, from the, we already know, as Frank put it this morning, that she's a goner, because we've seen in Act 2. But it explains why she's a goner, and it also gives her a chance to cry out against the injustice of that situation, which, by the way, uh, we each of us have our own identifications, perhaps, but was my situation just after Ed, just before Ed approached me. My father had died, and because I was working in another country, I couldn't see him die or see where he died in a hospital bed, which had had to be cleared. And so I identified very strongly with that situation, which, even though he was in his late 90s, hit me much harder than I could have expected. And, um, yeah, why not admit it? That I poured all that into that point of the piece. So the, the opera starts with the sound of the chorus actually breathing, and it's a trajectory going right the way through musically to mm. the last thing you hear, which is the high B of the lament of Antigone at the end of Act 3. And yet there's a lot of detours, and time is behaving in this fundamental reversal. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to have the titles past, future and present for each act projected so that people will get that connection. There'll be various costumes in other ways that we connect, com communicate it, but I think people will find, I hope, mm -hmm. that musically it is lucid and that that pulls them through the time shift. I hope so. And, and I certainly agree with Frank. Whenever I've seen the trilogy staged as plays, Antigone at the end does not seem like the end of the, the, the evening. It just mm -hmm. doesn't. Whereas Oedipus at Colonus really does. Mm -hmm. just, just talk us through the, the... Which is the death of Oedipus. Then the, the, how you mm -hmm. go about casting that musical trajectory, or rather realising that musical trajectory that goes all the way through. In, in the sense of... I mean, Julian, this is... Uh, as 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 a as a big opera is for for any composer. I mean, this you know this is the biggest thing in terms of time time scale and many other facets that that you've done. So is there is it a question of planning or is there a relationship between that it's that very felt that authentically felt emotion that you're expressing at the end of the opera, both Antigone's and in a, and in a sense your own? Was that something that is arrived at or that you knew was going to happen because it had to fit with the trajectory you designed for the piece or? It's a mixture of planning and spontaneity. If it's all pre-planned, it's like filling in a menu or a tax form and it's boring. <laughs> it doesn't need me to do it. Um, uh, but if you don't plan at all, you end up with sheer chaos. And so I, I try and... What I accept is that any pre-planning I do will be eaten up by the actual composing and something else may come out of it. But, I, but the trajectory is never the same. What was fundamental was the idea that it would begin with a, a sigh from the whole chorus, a huge collective sigh of breath, and would end with a single person's voice at the other side of the opera, the single woman singing. And that was absolutely fundamental trajectory, which I, from the moment we decided the order of the acts, I knew that. Mm. I didn't tell anyone about it because I wasn't sure it would work until I was actually composing it. But that, and that is, that is the case. And I composed with that scale in mind, from noise, as it were, mysterious at the start of the thing, to just a single voice on its own, without even the orchestra, which she silences mm -hmm. in the last bar, uh, or, you know, an individual. So it's also a journey from a collective 
thing to an individual at the end of the opera. Frank, but with many, many other things. No, sure, of course, we'll come back to that. Uh, Frank, when you, th th this, your relationship with opera pre-Julian, because the, 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 it's not just a question of plot, is it? It's a question of word in opera mm. and of word being lost or not communicated, I don't mean not communicated, but communicated in a different way in s and in some sense being subsumed by, by, by music that's happening. I mean, is that... When, in your previous experience of opera as, a, as an opera goer as opposed to as librettist, did that frustrate you, thinking, look, if I'd written that, but I'd, I'd want these words to be heard, or I'd want them to be done differently? No, no, it, it would never frustrate me in that I feel that the greatest singers and the greatest directors um, have an integrity about what they're doing, and that the, the very sound that they're making, the very move that they're making, that is as potent and as accurate as anything that we will hear uh, in the spoken theatre and the oral theatre. Uh, uh, Pierre delighted my heart yesterday when he was talking about the necessity to be as intimate and as accurate as possible in charting the emotional and moral de development of these individuals. We think we know these stories, of course we know these stories, but when you actually start to look at how specific Sophocles is in pinpointing the precise nature of the grief, the precise nature of the crime, um, the precise nature of the effect, that's, um, that sense of guilt, that overwhelming guilt um, that is so strongly felt by Oedipus. When you start looking at these intimacies, uh, then you can avoid the extremities of the wire, you know, a wash coming over everything. Mm -hmm. You can play the moment with immense integrity in opera as much as you can in theatre. And, I mean, even today, watching what Pierre has done, I was really shaken with excitement at how he is already allowing a world to be created, mm -hmm. a movement to be created, a swirl, an energy to be released. And that, I think, is, for me, the way that you realise any text mm -hmm. and the best directors know exactly what they're doing and how to do that. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, OK. So, uh, Pierre, do, do you want, I mean, is there a... Uh, Tom Pye sets, we, do we... Uh, um, you might want to talk about them a bit, I don't know. But the, the sense of uh, picking on what Frank's been saying about how you've already got... You've got the world inside you of, of, the, of these... Of the, this opera, of these three plays, in a way, uh, but, uh, and the sense of how much that's going to change or how much you're, you're communicating what's inside you to, to, to the actors in the room. You know, we've had to design the operas before the music arrived. Before the music arrived. Well, okay. of course, an opera house has to move forward with, with its planning, with its budget, so a, a set has to be ready a year before okay. a premiere, and, uh, you know, the, the, the music was not there. It's not the first time in my life that's happened, but, you know, in this particular case, it was doable because, you know, we're talking about Oedipus, Antigone, Oedipus, we know the text, and Frank was working from the Sophocles as a basis and not, re you know, making a completely new play. He was, uh, with Julian, intending to follow the essence of the play, so we had to use that as a basis. Now, of course, we hadn't heard the music, so we, you know, the interaction and the mix, who's singing with what, how is the chorus interacting with the soloist, all these decisions that are part of a universe of an opera, mm. we have to just sort of discover in the last year how that is once the scores have been released. Um, so, um, you can, you know, if you want to be really uh, perverse, you say, would you like to start again with Tom Pai now that you know everything? Uh, yes and no. 
uh, what we what I've tried to do with Tom Pai is uh, is to create a world which is uh, uh, flexible uh, and which uh, will allow us to to move uh, uh, in different directions if we want to uh, once you know we see how the material is working and I think the the big decision I arrived at uh, is that in order to really show, uh, uh, I mean, of course, the plays were, were designed to be done with masks. The chorus was meant to be dancing and singing. That's the Epidorus sort of concept of, of these plays. Then, you're talking about the original Greek. The original Greek. So, I mean, they were kind of operas, but they were very formal mm -hmm. and not psychological. Mm -hmm. So that, that's, that the presentation was very... So the emotion was hitting the audience on a, in a ritualistic, stylized way. Um, uh, okay, we're not... We're not we moved away from there. We're, we're doing them in classical English. Uh, uh, they are composed as operas. They are uh, uh, manipulated... By, the texts are manipulated by the composer who chooses to have two characters sing together two different lines. He chooses to have three characters sing while the chorus is also singing under them, while the orchestra is doing completely other noise, whatever. I mean, it's an opera. It's a creation of Julian as a composer who takes te Frank's text and in his own emotional way as a composer starts to manipulate the material mm -hmm. and create a tapestry uh, which then the director has to, you know, uh, interpret or bring to life in order to tell the truth, which is what Frank is referring to, mm -hmm. the, 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 the dramatic truth that an audience expects when they're watching a performance. They want to be told a story. These are fundamentally narrative plays. But, and but, that's, that's the way that this has been cast here as well. Yeah. But uh, having done the play, particularly Oedipus the King, I've also, uh, for several years, been thinking about the difficulty of surprising an audience with the material, because everybody knows that he's blind at the end, that his, that his wife is his mother, that he's killed his father. The entire audience knows this from the beginning. You cannot fool anybody with, the, with the, those facts. You cannot expect to surprise anybody throughout the evening, uh, which, of course, is an operatic uh, 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 ritual because everybody knows that Tosca is going to throw herself at the end of the opera, etc. So we have to arrive at another way to excite, excite the audience theatrically to tell the story. And you know, in, in Oedipus, uh, uh, I've, I've kind of made the decision that everybody's on stage from the beginning, so, so that the audience can already participate in the. Uh, the map, mm -hmm. the, 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 the family tree, but, but also the unfolding of the story, which is not just surprising Oedipus, who probably knows a great deal already. Uh, and, and what we're watching are the, the final Freudian stages of, of you know, moving towards mm -hmm. the big sacrifice. Jocasta also, you, 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 have to, you have to wonder how much she knows, how much she mm -hmm. doesn't know. Mm -hmm. So all of this can be made, I think, theatrically, I hope. I mean, it's my first day, so I can't, I can't, uh, <laughs> I can't guarantee it, but that's what I'm trying to do. Uh, can be made uh, more el electric, uh -huh. uh, more charged 
if the temperature at the beginning of the opera is already very, very high, yeah. Uh, and, 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 and nobody's being uh, asked to kind of uh, believe every word as it comes, as if it was the first thing that uh, mm. ever, anyone's ever uttered. And of course, music is a, not about the real naturalistic time. It's about the psychic journey. And so we are in an emotional, watching an emotional aquarium, and we are <laughs> seeing the figures, in a sense, traveling in relation to each other, uh, as if they were in a kind of womb mm -hmm. sort, sort of thing. And, and that's what I'm trying to do. G Julian, can I just... The, the thing about this story in particular, I mean, in a way, you know, Stravinsky's solution to that precise problem of... Uh, of people knowing what's going to happen in Oedipus was to precisely go for a kind of deliberately ritualistic, stylized version of, of the way that the story is told. Well, he has a speaker. Uh, well, yeah. Well, yeah. And, and, but yes, and also in the, in the, I'm thinking about the, you know, the blocks of the, the way that the whole story is made. And, and there are uh, other you know, contemporary composers who, who deal with myth in a particular way. I'm thinking of Harrison Burpus, or particularly the way he tends to, tends to, not always, fracture myths in a certain direction. But I mean, it seems to me that ritualistic and stylized, that's not what this, no, the, this not story sure, is at all. No, no. Well, I, it's Closest to Janáček, really. Mm -hmm. My model was Janáček, not and possibly Wozzeck a bit too, of Berg. Not uh, I admire Harry Bertel unreservedly, um, but he's doing that. He doesn't need me to do it. Mm -hmm. So I <laughs> thought I'd do it my way, which no, no, is but, a different but, 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 way. And the point sure. is really this: that there's nothing ritualistic about this, except the fact that, as Pierre rightly says, we all know beforehand what the outcomes of most of this plot will be. Consequently, the, actually, the time shift was even more necessary and even more relevant yeah, okay. because, uh, you yeah. see, you could, you could do that because, uh, yes, we know that story, but if you tell it the other way around, there's certain things crop up and certain parallels, certain similarities, certain emotional journeys become clearer and different. And it was up to me, I felt, to go with that. And um, the music is both illustrative and not. Sometimes it's literally just reinforcing emotion. Why not? In a very traditional way, perhaps. At other times, it seems to ignore what's going on on stage and just be kind of glacial and everything in between those states, um, which was very exciting for me to, to have the music flexible mm. in its response to the characters, to the singers, to the plot, etc. So it was, uh, it's, it's a gutsy kind of interpretation. It's not a formalised one. No. It's, it's very remote from formalised. Can, can I just ask something? Sorry, it's a question I haven't realised I haven't asked, which is why this story? I know, I know, I know it, now seems, it now seems completely inevitable it would be this story. Oh, because but, I felt but, the characters needed to sing. It's as simple as that. But My uh, criterion for whether or not to set a plot uh, for an opera or indeed uh, anything else that you... is do, Does this character need to sing? When I first read Emily Dickinson's poetry, which became the basis of an oratorio of mine, I thought she needs to sing. Mm -hmm. I kept Heavily coming across lines where it seemed to me Emily Dickinson needed to sing, and the result was an oratorio, Heaven is Shavuot, in which I had her sing. She's mm -hmm. the mezzo-soprano, which, by the way, Sue Bickley sang a few mm -hmm. years ago. She's in this production um, as Jocasta. Um, and in this case, many, many lines, even in the original Greek, because I did read the original Greek years and years ago as, as an A-level student, mm -hmm. struck me as I kept thinking, goodness, they need to sing, they need to sing that. I, that needs music. And when you find that burning need for vocal articulation in song, then you go with it. And it was as simple as that. It was I didn't imply any other mm -hmm. uh, criterion beyond do they, do they like to sing, do they wish to sing, do they need to sing, and does it get music out of me, will it get music out of me? Once the answer to both of those was yes, 
then I went with it. I th uh, five minutes more uh, of my questioning, and then the floor is open to you. Uh, I just want, b before turning the floor over to you, uh, get, let's get a sense of, of uh, Julian Ed, the, the sense of, of, what, of what the piece sounds like, or, or what one thinks it sounds like in, in the orchestration. Thinking particularly about the, the, the roles and the different kinds of vocal articulation that you give to the chorus, Julian, uh, the quarter tones, harmonies that you employ uh, throughout the orchestras and the vocal lines, the sense of what the orchestral sound world is and how, how various it might be, either of you. Uh, quickly from me, just to give Julian a break. I, I, it's, um, I, I, I had a session with the chorus this afternoon, and it's fantastically singable and dramatic. And Julian is a singer himself. I mean, he said to me earlier today that he he sang through every single vocal line himself to make sure it, you know. And they're not easy, but I mean, there are ninths, there are sevenths in things that people that people have to shift. But but it really it really sings, and it's it's um and through that it's incredibly dramatic and. With Frank's visceral text, which is, I mean, amazing to hear. You'll hear them tomorrow morning, Frank, sing, sing about their buckets of blood, as you know. But it's, um, it's, it's amazing. I mean, it's exactly the right language for, for, to present something in such a short, short space of time. Uh, the orchestration, big orchestra? How, how is the... Very big. And the quarter tone thing, I mean, there, there is, I mean, uh, Julian should talk more about this, but for, it seems that it gives it an otherness. Yes, that, is... was, that was entirely used mm. at moments where, as you put it, an otherness is needed. For example, Tiresias, the blind prophet, yeah. man, woman, what is he, who is he? He comes mm. from somewhere else, he has knowledge no one else has. So I changed the tuning for that point to give a magical, kind of surprising, fleeting feel to his orchestral accompaniment, the following section, that disappears. Mm -hmm. It comes back in certain areas and mm -hmm. not in others. Uh, to some extent, whenever fates invoke, you kind of get yeah. some, some funny tuning chords. I, I didn't use it throughout. I used it for specific mm -hmm. colours, specific textures, and then I leave it and use other ones. Mm -hmm. And the music is, in a way, as simple or as complicated as I felt the situation mm -hmm. Needed. I mean, where, where I didn't think there are stretches where there's very little acting, well, there's stretches where there's a hell of a lot. I think you know. the opening of the second act, which yeah. is solo, voice, for looks like two or three. Well, that, that's that, that's that, about that? a minute and a half, yeah. yes. Yeah. I, I took the decision to start act two with, with Creon on his own. It wasn't the first version I, I checked that that was the right one. But then when the orchestra comes in, the orchestra comes, you, you know the orchestra's <laughs> sure, come in. Sure. I mean, the other thing is, for example, to symbolise the what at Frank and... Pierre yeah, referred to as Act Two, the Antigone. Creon is ruling Thebes, and he's established what amounts to a fascist state. And to symbolise that, I've used only one rhythm, one duration, actually, for page after page of the mm -hmm. first half of that act. You just get crotchets. Mm -hmm. Very remorseless. Mm -hmm. That was very difficult to do because I don't usually write music with only crotchets, mm -hmm. and I found it very. And then I found actually there's a lot you can do with the old crotchet. <laughs> <laughs> don't don't underestimate the crotchet. And uh, but but it but it does give this sort of vortex-like feeling of no escape, no escape. Mm -hmm. Wherever you turn, there's more of the, the damn things. <laughs> and gradually, as this all is on, breaks down, so the pulse breaks down mm -hmm. too. And that gave me a, a, a simple but powerful, I hope, dramatic tool to work with. Uh, the, Very uh, intuitive kind of decisions, you know. Can well, I ask yeah, one question yeah. of Julian? Yeah, so publicly, please. which is. Yeah. Um, we talked about the f you've you've done two versions of Act One, and, mm -hmm. and the, the second one is the one that we're, we're one thankfully left yeah, with. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. Uh, Jocasta's great scene—that that is a formal aria. There are a few. Yes. Yeah, but there that's the original thing that you wrote. The first music in the opera that I wrote that survives now is Jocasta's Aria in Act One. I mean, oh, okay. I could say something technical, which would bore people, but. 
Basically, I will say one thing, which is that there's one very important problem in contemporary music which I've begun to realize is very important, and I discussed it with other composers too, which is that there's a very particular problem of writing for the male voice. Um, no accident that Pierre Boulez and many other avant-garde composers wrote lots and lots of music for sopranos. It's not just because Cathy Barbarian was around and all that. <laughs> it, there are many, many reasons to do with the way that harmony sounds in modern music and so on, why a soprano voice on top yeah. is very powerful and articulate. Claude Vivier, almost all his music is soprano, except for Prolo for Marco Polo, um, almost all female voice. That's not an accident either. Now, I, there are various ways in which you have to deal with the male voice, but if I was to criticise other contemporary operas, one problem I have is when they're writing for male voice, I don't hear the notes. Mm. And I wanted my singers to be able to tell, at least as much of the time as I could guarantee, <laughs> whether they were right or wrong, mm. and whether their notes were actually relating to the harmony in the orchestra or weren't. And that was why I rewrote Act One, because I had not taken that into sufficient well, consideration. Is that it's no accident that the only surviving fragment of Act One that I retained into is, is, is the uh, most lyrical, the and it's a, it's a soprano, well, mezzo-soprano aria, whereas the, the music for, otherwise it's a male cast in that act, and the music for the male cast was not right. Well, is it, is it like sim sim so I simply, is that, is that, is that, is that, is that a question of balance, Julian? No, or what is it? nothing, nothing okay. to do with balance at all. Okay. No, 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 I can it's make a do, voice audible when I want. It's, no. it's to do with the, the it's harmony. It's to do with, with harmony and it's yeah. to do with pitch and it's to do with singers actually singing pitches that sound like they're the right pitches. Yeah, fair I enough. would rather like that. Fair enough. <laughs> I, I, if I'm going to spend a lot of time in this case finding the right pitches, I'd like people to actually feel that they were the right ones. <laughs> in the same way that they are the right words. Um, uh, well, uh, because course. Frank's words are not, as you said, they're, they're not vague, they're very specific. Indeed. And I felt they demanded my music should be absolutely so. So, so that's why it's only the female aria that survives. Uh, thank you, all of you. Uh, questions from our floor. Can I give you two nice... Oh, yeah, go on. Oh, yeah, 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 sure. These only amuse me, but just... <laughs> because they do. Um, I love the fact that Julian gives the first sung bass note uh, to the basses in the chorus as they come in on a A flat with a quarter tone flat, as if that's <laughs> yeah, right, what right, they'd right. be singing anyway, <laughs> which is that, not true. Not but true. it is cued by the trombone. The trombone, I know, I know. They are, they um, are taking their cue from a trombone. And the other wonderful thing which we've been laughing about is uh, Polynices when he comes on. Uh, Sung <laughs> oh, brilliantly by Johnny McGovern. Wonderful, um, wonderful singer. The line that Oedipus has <laughs> about his son just before he, sing, he sings is, I loathe beyond loathing the sound of his voice. <laughs> and he has to come on and deliver It's a great line for an opera. After that. <laughs> it, you know, funnily enough, the irony of that only occurred to me once I'd finished that act, but I set it in a very direct way. You certainly know Oedipus doesn't oh, yeah. like his son, mm -hmm. my God. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Must be questions. <clears throat> the chorus. Yep. Uh, Brilliant. Well, is that me or Frank? Frank, or Frank or let's, let's start with you, Frank. Uh, oh, I have such sympathy for you. I have struggled with the chorus uh, <laughs> for many times. Uh, the more of the plays that I've done, though, the more I recognise that um, you know you have to be bold with them. Um, my brief to myself whenever I was tackling any Greek play was that if I do not understand the intricacies of mythological references, um, then I take the liberty of simplifying and trying to write as beautiful a poem to be sung as possible while rooting it 
in the, um, the literal translation that I work from. Uh, largely because I feel if, um, if a, a reader or if a, an audience member wants to go and find out more about it, there are plenty of exceptionally good scholarly texts. So I'm taking the, I'm just going with it. I'm trying to make this accessible. Um, I feel the, what we have done in previous plays that I've done, we have cut the chorus to one woman or to three women, only one of whom speaks or we do it with 12 men, as it was 12 actors, not singers, but 12 actors in, in Oedipus. Um, and what I have found from working with the different plays is that not only do the chorus um, vary uh, from play to play and the functions that they have, they vary within the play as to what they're doing. There is no hard and fast rule for what they're going to say, how they're going to behave. They're as unpredictable as everybody else in the text, and they're as self-serving and as protective as everybody else. They're, you know, they, their character is as complex and as changeable as the lead characters. And that was a great um, liberation for me as a writer, to know that um, I didn't have to uh, follow um, you know, a, a fixed form for them. And I also, I, I, that's in a fixed form for them in terms of their character, but I also just deliberately give myself the liberty to um, to write as, as I say, as beautiful a text as is possible mm. for them to sing, and that was my way of dealing with. But it also, Julian, I mean, just just look at the vocal score here, just to give a sense of how various the roles of the chorus are. The chorus will fill a range of roles in this. Act. This is just in That's Act Three. Act three the, vo yes. the voice of the sacred wood, the guardians of the sacred wood, the people of Athens, mm. the voice of Zeus calling Oedipus, etc. <laughs> I mean, that, that, that's a, that's a huge variety of well, of different kinds three, of Act Three is just a very different use of the chorus from the other two acts. Act One and Two the chorus respond to the different things that Frank is saying, but in terms of actually who they are, they are simply the people of Thebes. Mm -hmm. How they interact with the characters and mm -hmm. what they do is, is varying, though. Um, and I went with that very much as Frank went with, it, with, with the text. Um, in Act 3, they are off stage and they're heard over the speakers, and they can fulfill, I mean, the, the wood where Oedipus dies, Colonus, outside Athens, is a very strange place. All, you know, funny things happen. It's, a, it's a, not a normal place, not a wood you'd find on the map. And in order to reinforce the unnaturalness of that, dis disembodying the chorus, having them off stage, sometimes just making murmuring sounds of the forest, sometimes then they, they issue commands to Oedipus. You can go no further than here, stop, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and things like that. But you don't know who is saying that. Mm -hmm. It's deliberately mysterious. Yeah. And then other times they're just back to being the voice of the forest again. So I found that change of roles of the chorus, both within the first two acts and from acts one and two to act three, very, very that, stimulating we, musically we, we, also. Was, was that, By the way, that's yeah. a Janacek thing. Janacek makes in Katja here. The, mm -hmm. the chorus become the voice of the river when she's drowning and things. So again, I'm owing my to Janacek. But, 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 but Frank, is it, was that a, a liberation in a way, thinking about this as a libretto? Because actually, the, the, in a way, the the even more heightened or magical mm -hmm. realm of opera allows that oh, precisely does. that kind of it change does. to happen. And I mean, it actually simplifies the role. I mean, I have set through terrible productions of the of Greek tragedy where the chorus was effectively some kind of pans people moving around. <laughs> like this. Um, and I, you know, I, it took me a long time to get into the Greek plays because mm -hmm. of, uh, of setting through dreadful student productions mm -hmm. where they had to bring on, you know, the, the, every girl in the, in the society to do the chorus. Uh, and it was, I think it was just going line by line through the place where I recognised how disciplined um, theatrically the 
Sophocles and Euripides are the only two that I know how disciplined they are in, their, um, in how they expand the use of, of, of the chorus to, to enrich the play and layer the play. Um, but it took years to, mm -hmm. to lift off the, the bias against it, actually. And as you say, the, um, you know, they're bloody hard. Choruses are extremely hard, and they have a reason for being hard. Uh, it's because they, you know, they work at a very dense level, but they do work. However, you have to, as I say, really comb the text to find out how it happens. Mm -hmm. Anyone else? Yeah, please. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, when I was speaking to Julian earlier, you said that um, you would left quite a lot of room for interpretation at this stage. I don't want to breathe down people's necks. They know how to produce an opera. My job is to write the best music I can. I don't want to teach them how to do what they do much better than I do. Um, so I, I, want, I want to make sure that Pierre and Ed and so on have all the freedom to deal with this as they, as they need, um, but my job was to write the music. Sure. Uh, really, my question is, you know, can you describe to me what that space is like for you, Ed? To me, as a layperson who's never stood in front of an orchestra with a brand new score, you know, what does that interpretation room look like, feel like to you? I think we're finding it all together as we go along, actually, which is which is kind of wondrous because um, we talk a lot. I mean, Julian says he's not very good at metronome marks, and I say I'm not very good at metronome marks either. So <laughs> we're sort of stuck in the middle. But but we, you know, we did a run through with the singers the other day, and I think we'll spend six weeks with Pierre, and we talked about this just a few minutes before we sat down. Um, about what the pace is and, and how we find it all together. And Julian's been disingenuous, saying he'll leave it to other people. I mean, he's given us an extraordinary dramatic framework, but together we'll all find what it is that makes this three-act arc speak. And when you hear stuff outside your head for the first time, you change your... changes the way you view it. It's a yeah. bit like meeting somebody in person when you've only seen their photograph, yeah? So, have you changed anything in here? In here, with you? I've changed some speeds because I and but I, Ed and I had already spoken months ago about this, and we'd agreed about uh, tempi and uh, various bits. So I said that's probably too fast, and we'll see. And I'm sure we'll carry on doing that. There were yeah. bits in the chorus I rehearsed this afternoon where I thought that feels that feels alive and quick. I'm not sure Gina will like. It. I don't know. I mean, and we'll. Um, yeah. But that's creating a new piece of a new piece of dramatic art. I mean, how. How more privileged could we all be than doing, doing this right now? And it's a discovery for me too. Mm -hmm. um, thank you, gentlemen, for a wonderful evening. Thank you. Thank you, thank you Tom. That was lovely. Thank you. 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 Th